This is an official communication from the government of Sofistan. Please construct a reasonable warrant for standing or sitting for the Sofistani National Anthem. From the country where you have to switch side debate your way into a visa. Where every restaurant's soup of the day is convince me. This is the Republic of Sophistan. One goal, one mission. To decolonize the minds of human beings around the world from poor quality argumentation. This weekly podcast from the government of the Sofistan Republic is available on anchor.fm slash Republic of Sofistan. Have a comment for the show? Email us, podcast at sofistan.com. I am the Minister of Education for the Republic of Sofistan, Dr. Steve Yano, and I welcome you and encourage you to join us every week. Practice, argue, think, and become a sophist. Hello, greetings, welcome. I am Dr. Steviano. Education Minister for the Republic of Sovastan, and I thank you and welcome you to our very first of what looked like an incredibly, incredibly interesting, incredibly, uh, hopefully successful series of podcasts from our country to wherever you are in the world to help you think, reason, and argue better. You know, I wasn't sure exactly how I was going to start this series. Uh, I talked with everybody here at the embassy. We're here in New York City at the Sovastani Embassy our permanent mission to the UN, but it really could be a permanent mission to rhetoric, debate, and argument, which are the true things that most Silvestanis believe in and think are excellent and are the things that are worth uh, living for, striving to be excellent in, all of that. So I thought the very first episode I would discuss with you, what is debate good for? Debate is the national pastime, almost a religion, Almost the same way American football is for Americans and soccer for the rest of the world. Almost like a religion. It's not just a sport. It's something that everyone hopes to do well in their daily life. And they want to do it with their friends and family. And they want to succeed. Now, what success is might be a bit different than what you think it is. But let me get into some of the things that happened in the last week or two from my government that we'd like to talk about. Debate is certainly not good for figuring out who is right, but it is great for figuring out flexibility. Flexibility under changing conditions, determining what ideas you have, what they lack, and what our principles are, or more importantly, what our principles should be. All of those things are very fluid and very, very changeable depending on the situation. Last week, the government of Sofistan announced support for the September 27th Brookings Institute article by Robert E. Leighton, I hope I'm saying his name right, Leighton, called A Counterintuitive Proposal for Improving Education and Healing America, Debate-Centered Instruction. 
Although the sentiment of this essay is deeply shared, the government of Silverstein takes issues with a couple of conceptions within the essay, and I have it here, and I've been looking at it, and what we support is this idea that debate education is essential part of education. We like that sentiment quite a bit. And also this piece is really fascinating because it deals with something that in debate research, in competitive debate research, high school, junior high, the collegiate level of research and debate has always been an issue. And that is the self-selection bias in debate. So here's the scenario. If students decide to join their debate team and then they have success later in life, top admission to law school, dean's list, all kinds of fantastic stuff happens to them. Was it debate that caused them to be so successful? Was it practice and argumentation that caused them to be so successful? Or did they self-select for debate because they were already a successful person? Or they already had other traits, not measured by a debate study, that led to their success? And Lighten clears this up by pointing out that there was a study in 2011 by Brianna Mezuk, Professor Brianna Mezuk, an epidemiologist at the University of Michigan, who studied Chicago Urban Debate League students and found that even after accounting for the influence of self-selection, I'm reading from Linton's piece here, debaters were more likely to graduate from high school, perform better on the ACT, and showed greater gains in cumulative GPA relative to similar comparison students. Well, that's all well and good. It takes care of the selection bias piece, but what's concerning to me is the idea that debate only allows people to succeed within the dominant forms of what we believe reason and success to be. In Sophistan, we keep those things open. This is also connected with the idea of debate as being valuable because it adds to civic discourse because it allows you to see the other side of the argument. In Sophistan, we believe every argument's other side has another side. We like to debate and argue from the other side's other side if that makes sense to you. The idea here is a debate-centered education. Having debate go throughout the curriculum and putting it into classes, or maybe even Lytton suggests teaching it as a semester-long course to introduce them, to, uh, students, to the idea of debate. He is uh, disparaging of lecture and disparaging of other kinds of education that happen in the schools. Although he's generally right, Debate-centered education is not the solution. Debate education, rhetorical education, is the solution. What is the school curriculum based on now? It's based on the idea that facts and truths about the world can be known and can be transmitted via teaching through exercises to give students a baseline. Wouldn't it be better to provide them the tools to construct or reconstruct that baseline when that set of facts and expert opinions inevitably fails? This isn't the first time that we've seen this happen as Americans lament a post-fact society. In the Sophistani Constitution, we mandate our society be post-fact. The reason? Because it keeps people talking, thinking, and engaging about ideas. When you put the truth or a set of facts into play in your national, local, or regional politics, the stakes become so high that discussion seems impossible. If someone were to disagree with that truth or those facts, that would mark them as incapable of persuasion, leaving them out of any kind of reasonable construction of that society. We don't think this is healthy or good. We don't think this is great at all. And uh, 
Leighton betrays that kind of cultural bias. I mean, he is American after all, I'm assuming. So he has that cultural bias here in lines of the idea that he should, quote, structure student debates on key questions raised by their literature, history, civics, and even science classes, as if the history of science was not one constructed on rhetorical angling, persuasive messaging, and robust, thoughtful, and open debate. That's the history of science. That's the history of rhetoric. Instead of prioritizing debate in the classrooms, why not move the classrooms to a debating, a complete rhetorical and debating curriculum? You could teach all of it, but at the same time, you'd be teaching students to be the teachers themselves. For example, framing a question, putting a question forward to students and saying, what is your take on this? Construct a speech, construct a presentation. Let's go. People will question and challenge them. You know, this isn't so far-fetched. In David Potter's book, Debating in the Colonial uh, Chartered Colleges, came out in 1944 from Columbia University. I believe it was his dissertation. He talks about how debate was a key part of the curriculum. This kind of debate is one we wouldn't recognize. Well, very much like how if you're listening and you don't have any background in intercollegiate or high school debating, you also would probably not recognize a debate. If you went to a debate competition out there in the world, uh, today, you wouldn't recognize it as debate. It wouldn't look like debate to you. It's very, very technical, very, very formal, very quick, and it relies on a lot of shorthand that's not meant to persuade audiences. It's meant to show judges and to show opponents what move is being made so they can counter. I think we could just teach rhetoric as the curriculum and put everything else in it to show people how as Stephen Toulman identified many, many years ago in the 1950s, how field-dependent facts and truth are when we look at them as rhetorical constructions, as things that communities have put together as shorthand for explaining the world to themselves and each other. In field dependency, Stephen Toulman argues that an argument is only good within the field that it was meant for. That is, the audience, the subject matter, who it is you're persuading and what you're persuading them about, that's where the facts come from. And we'll get into more detail on that with the piece that I've decided to start with today, uh, which is a great companion piece to what Lytton is arguing, because Lytton's saying some debate would be pretty good within the curriculum as a subject. But Wayne Brockreedy, in his 1975 Journal of American Forensics Association piece, where his argument argues pretty strongly that debate is not a subject, but part of humanity. In fact, with the movie Venom coming out, I was rereading this piece and thinking of debate possibly as a symbiote, argument as a symbiote, something that wants something from us but can't live without us. And I know that's a very radical way to think about argument and debate or rhetoric, but it's something that we could debate about and talk about. In Sophistan, all propositions are welcome because the debate over the proposition, as ridiculous as it might be, will open our eyes to how weak how incredibly oriented towards a limited audience our ideas are, how our evidence is incomplete. There's nothing better than the realization of this. But in our culture, we don't take things as if we are losing or gaining the truth. We don't feel that that is accessible. To a sophist, what is true is aimed at and derivative of the audience. That is, for any question, the audience will coalesce around particular kinds of values or beliefs and those are the things that they're going to evaluate on. Do they get to the truth? No, but they never will. They'll get to what's workable and functional for them for that situation in that moment. Can they change their minds? Absolutely. 
And this is the biggest, biggest piece of why debate is valuable, because it teaches you that there's no shame in changing your mind, that there's nothing lost when you say, I was wrong about that. Good argument. I need to think about that again. I need to go examine my principles again. And that happens so rarely in American politics. It's quite shocking to me to look at the newspaper or look at the TV news as I'm here at the uh, at the embassy in New York and say, wow, if only one of these senators or representatives would say, wow, I was wrong about that. Thanks for bringing that to my attention. Recently, I saw one of your senators, Jeff Flake, cornered in an elevator. People making passionate, powerful arguments. And he just looked at the floor, insulting, wrong. That wouldn't fly in my country. No sophist would accept that. If wrong, welcome the critique. Welcome your wrongness. Engage, talk, and argue. Wayne Brockreedy in this essay, Where is Argument? He tells us five things to notice about arguments if we would like to find them. Once we find, he says, look for where people are. That's where arguments are going to be. This is not a sense of argument as anything connected to logic or enlightenment reason or anything like that. Arguments are connected to people. That is, people make arguments with, for, and around other people. This is a really amazing way to think about it. And think about it in relation to a debate-centered instruction curriculum. That's debate as around topics. That's debate as around subjects. That's not the kind of debate. That's not the kind of argument that Brock Reedy is pushing here. There are six elements to argument that Brock Reedy encourages us to think about and look for to see if we have an argument. First, an argument must make an inferential leap of some kind. Now, an inferential leap is making an inference. You don't have all the information. You don't have all the facts. In fact, you might have no facts. If you're debating about the future or arguing about the future, there might not be any facts available. You might have history, but as we all know, history is not fact. History is the best constructed interpretation that historians can make, given what they can find and what they discover about a people or a place or a time. There's really not a lot of fact involved in debating the future. It's not about anchoring it to truth either. It's about inference. I see a connection here, and I'd like you to see it too. That's one of the key building blocks of good argumentation. Something inspires the speaker. So things seem to go together, and they want to share it. They want other people to join in that perception. That's one of the building blocks of argument. Not this idea that gets taught in school, like, go find all the facts, go find all the truth and the evidence, and then come to the debate. Not this, this kind of nonsense that we see on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC. They shop a colonized notion of debate and argument, colonized by the idea that scientific fact and reason is the only way one can think properly. Absolute nonsense. Human beings test the limits and the ways and the ideology of their thinking through debate and argumentation, through the ability of trying to defend an idea or perception and saying, wow, I did a terrible job on that. I need to work on it. Or, wow, that's untenable. Maybe I should think about a different view. These things are healthy, normal, wise, and they're the root of civic practice. The second thing Brock Reedy talks about. Now, that was all me. Brock Reedy just says inferential claim. That was all my sort of riffing off of Brock Reedy. <clears throat> and I think that um, 
uh, I think that I wonder if he would support it or not. Probably not. I mean, he's kind of got a, a kind of a well, I think the reason he's offered this definition is for us to riff off of it like that. Secondly, this inferential leap has to have a rationale behind it. Notice that Brock Reedy does not say that it has to have reason behind it, that it has to have logic behind it, that it has to have facts behind it. Brock Reedy doesn't say any of those things. He says it has a rationale. Now, what is a rationale? Rhetoric in the service of how did I see it this way? Rhetoric in the service of I think anybody would see it this way. Rhetoric in the service of I don't think there's any other way to see it. These are the kind of things we hear in argument, yes? I think so. I mean, I try, I try very hard when I'm on the subway or the bus or in public to listen very, very hard to arguments that I am um, around because I'm kind of a, a creeper like that. I like to collect arguments and listen to them and be like, wow, did that really work? Is that really the argument that she's going to buy or he's going to buy? Wow. It fascinates, absolutely fascinates me. So the, the, uh, the problem with reason, enlightenment reason, not reasons, which is different like logos in ancient Greek, reasons and capital R reason are very different things. And we'll get into that in other episodes. Facts and logic, these things shut down argument. Argument is meant to be, normatively meant to be, imaginative, exploratory, and adhesive. It's meant to be sticky, not a concrete bunker or a tank or something like that. It's not to be meant to be a glossy and penetrable surface that you admire. We're meant to stick to it. Not in, in terms of conviction, but wow, I'm attracted to that. I want to be like a, like a moth to a candle. I know the moth meme is very popular right now. We can think about that. I'm not the minister of memes, though, so I don't know if I'm stepping outside my um, my role here as education minister. But uh, anyway, we will never find arguments thinking about a glossy, impenetrable marble or a tank or hard surface like that. We'll never get there. It's meant to be sticky. It's meant to be explanatory. It's meant to be exploratory. It's meant to be imaginative. These are the things that attract people to ideas. People aren't attracted to ideas that are still dead and cold and impenetrable. We'll never get an argument if that's our standard. We'll never find it. The next thing that Brock Reedy gives us is the idea that there must be a choice between competing claims. Now, this is very odd. Aren't arguments supposed to be airtight, impervious, waterproof? Aren't they supposed to compel people to our side? Nonsense. In order to do this, you have to get people to reason, to try on your rationale, to consider and compare. To do otherwise is just to, to dominate them, to, to, to dictate to them what to do. To say, hey, you ought to do this. Come on, idiot. I mean, you might not say it like that, but a lot of times debate and argument feels like that. It's like limiting the circle. You got to give people a chance to try it on. Think about a clothing store. Think about a car dealership. People have to try things out in order to come to your side. If there's no choice, if there's no competition between the inferential jump offered by the speaker and not making that jump, staying where you are, something's really off. This is deception. There's no choice. It's deception. It's a false argument and possibly a fallacy. Uh, you have to give them the choice. Now, think about this from an argument point of view. It's like, here's what I think, and here's why I think it. This encourages you to provide a lot more detail and a lot more reasoning and a lot more thought into what you say to the people you're trying to convince. This goes a lot further than just dictating to them what you think is right and what to do. The fourth 
It's probably the best one, which is arguments require regulation of uncertainty. Now, for Brock Reedy, he's talking about this a little bit differently than I'm going to. So let me share his view first, and then I'm going to riff off of his ideas for a little bit. Now, Brock Reedy says, if there is no uncertainty, there's no need for argument. He conflates that with agreement. So if we're certain, if we know what to do, if the path ahead is clear, there's no need to have an argument or to debate. And if we have too much uncertainty, then there's really just no way to debate because there's nowhere to gain any kind of small footing, any kind of anchor point, any kind of traction. Very, very difficult at best. So there won't be debate there either. You just have chaos. You have a thousand voices talking. Uh, you think about a, a group of people all together talking at once and you have that view of uh, uncertainty as well. Now, I think about this a bit differently. I would say there will always be some uncertainty involved in argumentation. There has to be a little bit. Uh, without it, you, you, if you nail it down, there's no argument. It has to wiggle. It has to have room to maneuver. That's what a good argument looks like. If you speak, you have to take responsibility for what it is you're talking about, what it is you're proposing to change. You have to be open and responsible for what you're pushing forward. Uh, we don't really see that from a lot of American politicians. So I'd say they're not engaging in rhetorical argumentation. They're engaging in the speech of domination and the speech of a kind of a, um, uh, a um, coercion uh, modes. And we see that a lot in the U.S. Senate and U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, this doesn't fly in Sophistan. Um, instead, we would say, if we're certain something might be wrong, let's investigate. And we might set up what's called a switch side debate. Switch side debate is very familiar to those of you who've done competitive debate at the junior high, high school or college level. What switch side debate is means that instead of picking the side of the topic you're in favor of, you're assigned a random topic, but you're assigned your side first. And this gets you to flex your intellectual muscles of trying to figure out what arguments are most convincing to you and to the judge and to the audience uh, about that topic. Um, we engineer debates. That's what a switch side debate is, is an engineered debate uh, meant to ensure we're not leaving out a valuable perspective in our rush to get it right or to get a decision. You know, decision fatigue is a real thing, and we don't want to have that happen. We want to make sure all valuable perspectives are considered. And one of the most amazing things about debate, if you decide to do it or you decide to argue with your friends and practice the skills of a sophist, uh, you're going to find that perspectives emerge that you recognize as good that none of you had yourselves. They emerge out of the process. Process is a very important wor word for thinking about debate. It's not just the mastery of finding facts and communicating them well. It's the process of figuring out uh, what the facts are that no one knows or what those uh what those things are that nobody knows and nobody's really uh, connected with. So currently it seems like people want to abandon this idea and rely on facts, data, information, statistics, formulations of the truth. Regulating uncertainty doesn't mean eliminating it. Oddly, you become much more persuasive if you leave elements open for interpretation or disagreement. A totalizing approach will harm the formation and foundation of your arguments. Think about all arguments as co-created. They're co-authored with the audience. You want them nodding with you. You want them saying, yeah, I believe that. That's what I would think too. This is what you want. The fifth is Brock Reedy's willingness to risk confrontation. Many people, rightfully so, are confrontation averse. And I get that. I get that it's not fun to get into a confrontation and a disagreement with people. But there's nothing quite like a moment when you present your best idea and a friend or colleague says to you, an unbelievable thing that you know is right, good, or valuable that you hadn't thought of that takes apart your argument or makes you reconsider it. We consider it a great honor in Sophistan to be trounced like that. 
We like making good arguments, and that comes with well above the attribution of that good argument to one's identity. In the United States and many other countries, there's a strange link you people do between the concept of argumentation as in a person or their identity, who they are. They're a good arguer. They're the best debater. This is nonsense for Sophistanis. The location of a good argument is always in the performance and the process, and it's always a group effort. You have to have listeners there. Whose argument is it? Is it the one that you thought of in your head? The one that you spoke through your mouth? The one that you wrote on the paper? The one that the audience took in with their eye into their head and thought about? The one they took in with their ear? Where does argument live? It's around people. Brock Reedy's right. There's no sense of someone being a good arguer or being a good debater as a part of their being. That doesn't work. It's a practiced group activity. And that's how we know who's good at debate and who's not. Rockery supports this idea, basing it on risk. You have to risk changing your mind when you enter an argument. He goes as far as to say it's essential to the argument process, and we agree. But we don't see it as risk. We wouldn't use that term. We see it as an honor, a joy, as something really great that we hope happens. Sixth and finally, Rockery writes that arguers must have a frame of reference shared optimally. That's a direct quote from the essay. Now, what the heck does that mean, a frame of reference shared optimally? Well, he explains it as the idea that arguers have to share an optimal amount of similar reference points. I think this is what people mean when they say we're in an alternative fact or a post-fact world, is that we don't have enough shared points of fact of agreed upon reality in order to engage in productive argument. I think that's a valid concern. I think that might be the best interpretation of post-fact out there would be this one. Um, You must have similar enough views with your opponent and with your audience in order to make argumentation possible. There have to be handholds. There have to be places to put your feet and to uh, think about things. A suboptimal sharing would also include when arguers share too much. So you lose interest in the debate and the argument because you have so many points in common that there's not a lot of, uh, you're too much on the same page. There's nothing to be gained by arguing. And there's little in agreement to dispute. That is true. That's why the sophist always tries to take the difficult position. As Protagoras said, an ancient Athenian sophist, my job is to make the weaker case the stronger. And with that as a principle, you'll always find places and times and ability to argue. Well, the principles of debate and sophistan and what debate is good for are answered a lot by Wayne Brockreedy in this piece and some of the things I've said. And we hope that you will take these things on and think about argument in your daily life. Look for when people are together. Do you find an argument there? Does it meet the six steps that Brock Reedy uh, suggested? Uh, Debate is connected to reasons shared verbally in exchange to a group who has some some agreement on the nature of the world, situation, and context. And that's where argument can be found. It's not found in truth or facts or research studies. And debate isn't the place where you take that research study as a bat and hit people on the head with it. It's not like what you see on CNN. These are colonized forms of debate and argument that are meant to destroy civic society. They're not meant to prop it up, and they're not meant to give you a voice. They're meant to silence your voice. Uh, People who say scientific reasoning is the only way to think about problems are there to silence your voice. And so your perspective and your experiences have no bearing on the civic. We in Sofistan strongly disagree with these attitudes, and the Republic of Sofistan would never encourage this kind of reasoning. Instead, community-based norms a shared sense of collective experience, and the willingness to put it all on the line and risk sharing your idea in hopes that someone will say, hey, that's not quite right, or why don't you think about this, is the only way 
we can improve ourselves and each other and our thoughts to advance civic society, which is in the end a rhetorical construction. has been the Republic of Sofistan podcast. For more information, sofistan.com or anchor.fm slash Republic of Sofistan. Please leave us your comments, thoughts, and criticism of the show. Republic of Sofistan is produced by International Debate Associates, LLC, in New York City. Thank you for listening.